you're listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast, where the forecast here is always compelling as we discuss real-life challenges, successes, and stories from the journey to Hybrid Cloud with your host, Andre Tost. Welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hybrid Cloud Podcast. Today's guest is Farid Abrahams. Um, thanks a lot oh, for coming. You're welcome, and I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Great. Me too. Um, Farid is an IBM fellow, and his job title is he's the IBM CTO for Global Quality in IBM's consulting branch. And I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about that. Um, but as always, let's just start out with introductions. So um, uh, I, I'm, I'm really excited to hear more about your background, kind of where you came from, how you got to be where you are today, and, and tell us a bit more about your job right now. Sure, sure. So I was born in South Africa, in Cape Town. Uh, of course, I was born during a very tenuous period uh, in, in the political history of South Africa. Uh, you know, uh, during apartheid, I lived uh, in a in a group areas act restricted to certain races. Um, my parents, uh, my mother, both my mother and father uh, didn't even go to high school, uh, so my father was a laborer. But I don't think I didn't think much of it uh, because I went to elementary school, an all boys elementary school, very close to the Cape Town Harbor. I mean, I could see Robben Island every day from where I went to school. And all my father and all his brothers work in the dockyard, so I was very close to my family. I live about ten minutes away from the dockyard, so I see all my uncles, my entire extended family, almost every day. And for somebody who's in the elementary school. That's the entire world. Uh, I, I guess as you got older, you sense the world is expanding and the things you learn about the world is expanding. And so you become a little bit more inquisitive about that world. Would you, would you describe yourselves as, as ambitious at that time? I mean, did, mm. you, did you foresee what was going to happen with your life later? No, I did not. Uh, I did not. I was pretty happy with, even though it, it was apartheid and, you know, it was just restricted, uh, I think I was very happy with my circumstances, I guess, given that, you know, I had, all my needs were met, uh, let's put it that way, right? I had my schooling, I had my family, uh, you know, and, and I don't think I actually had a sense of, uh, you know, needing more than that. I live in a community that was mostly Muslim also. I live in an area that they call the Malay Quarter because of the history of South African Muslims to Malaysia and Indonesia. And so, you know, my, my uncles live there. Uh, both my parents, uh, you know, families live in the same neighborhood. Uh, and I could run anywhere in the neighborhood and I know everyone. Uh, and so for me, that was... That was enough. And, and by the way, and I hope this is not a silly question, but what language did you grow up with? I speak, I spoke Afrikaans uh, and some English, but English was not the medium. I, I, I you know, I didn't speak English uh, in conversational until I got to high school. And then English is a requirement 
uh, to finish high school. So, but until then, I spoke a mix of Afrikaans and other, other you know, indigenous language com- combination. Uh, everybody called it, you know, more of a slang or a kitchen type language that people used to communicate with from different groups. You know, I speak Afrikaans when I speak with my with my with my parents, uh, and then you know when you're outside, you just speak a slang language that everybody can understand because they're from different groups. Do you still use that every now and then today? Uh, I guess my mom used to tell me when I was young, you know, just take that language outside, not in the house, right? So, so, you know, it. it uh, <laughs> but I don't, I don't usually speak it much. Uh, I speak it maybe when I see friends. Um, you know, uh, everybody's always surprised that I still. But sometimes they laugh. Sometimes they laugh. Like every language, it has changed. I have been disconnected from that language, and I still sometimes, when I talk to them in the slang, I use all the words, and everybody looks at me like, what generation are you from? You know, because as languages evolve, if you're not there, right, uh, you're not evolving with the language. So I, I think, I, think I know exactly what you're talking about, and I don't know if I mentioned that, that I'm from Germany originally, mm-hmm. right? I've yes. been in the U.S. for over 25 years yeah. now and yeah. it's the same thing that even though I talk I, I go visit all the time and I talk to my yeah. family there all the time but it's just like you described the language changes and I'm not changing with it and I even have the impression that sometimes now I go to Germany and people think <laughs> I speak funny you know yes it's <laughs> getting worse it's exactly that uh, so I try not to I start I kind of stick because most of my family do speak English I happened to grow up with my grandmother uh, in my grandmother's household, and she spoke Afrikaans, and so I spoke Afrikaans, uh, and that was the medium. I think for me also, I grew up in my grandmother's house. My older cousins from, well, my firstborn cousins from my mom's brothers and sisters also live in that household. So I live with my cousins. I go to school with my extended cousins. So, like you said, you know, I, I was fine. I didn't have the ambition that, as I got older, the ambition was to be an architect because I went to what you call a schooler, a vocational school, uh, that where I draw, you know, I draw lots of building drawings, dresses, housing, stuff like that. And as I got older, it became a little tedious. Uh, I went to a school by the name of Swiss Bona Boys. It was uh, a technical, probably the only technical school of its kind uh, for non-white students in South Africa. It was also a boarding school. So I didn't board because it was in Cape Town. But as you get older, you know, and I mean, your world expands a little bit. You don't want to spend three hours after school drawing buildings. And so I dropped that. Uh, I didn't want to be an architect anymore. And so I opted for a teacher because they have long summer vacations in South Africa. The entire summer is a vacation. And I like that. Uh, so the summer being our winter, right? So it's over. <laughs> yes, vacation. yes, yeah. yes. Correct. It starts now in December. Final exams usually is about now, uh, beginning of December, and everybody goes on vacation. But, you know, there's other things that happened during that time with me. I became very inquisitive about 
why my world is like like it was. I spent time at uh, the German embassy. I got introduced to the Zeitung, uh, newspapers like that. Uh, Build and others. I joined. I went to the American Information Services, and I used to go there usually once a week to watch the news uh, because the news were censored in South Africa. International news was censored in South Africa at the time. So books were also banned. And so I go to the information agency to get certain books so I can read uh, maybe, you know, the Diary of Malcolm X and other books that was banned in South Africa, but also other books. Then I, 14 years old, I undertook this journey. Uh, I, I traveled uh, on a railway bus. I hiked and I on trains. And I was 14 years old. I was in the 10th grade at the time, and I took the journey for most of the southern part of South Africa. By myself, slept in different places. I think I was about 14, 15 years old. Uh, you know, it was during my vacation. I met different people. I slept on a hops farm where they grow hops for beer, although I don't drink, but it was, you know, these were guests, uh, you know, guest workers, guest arbiters. Uh, they take care of the farm. They don't own the land, right? Those kind of things. I stayed with them. Uh, and so I stayed with people who transport milk in other areas uh, for Cadbury and others. I would drive with them in the morning and stuff like that. And that's when I think my ambition started. I wanted to do something else uh, beyond just being a teacher wanted to influence where I live because I would love, as I move, I got new experiences. I finally came home. And when I went to university, I didn't study really, you know, teaching subjects. I studied and I majored in anthropology and history, especially African anthropology, the movement of people and, and stuff like that. The thing then that happened is, uh, you know, the university, the University of Western Cape, which was part of and the forefront of a lot of, you know, like uh, the United Democratic Front, some of the uh, front runners of trying to dismantle apartheid, and all, of course were very successful in, in helping with that. Um, they introduced a computer system. Actually, they were buying time off a computer system that was used for ESCOM, the electricity provisioning company. Uh, and so, you know, it was a authoring a Plato system. They call it Plato. Uh, it was authoring and it was supposed to be helped with education, with teaching. Uh, essentially, you know, uh, computer-based. Uh, but it was very uh, primitive. Are we talking about computer access for the teachers or for the students or both? For the students and teachers. Teachers can actually author, and then it would be mostly multiple choice. It could be used for languages, you know, uh, learning maybe phrases and, and, and learning new languages. It was very simple in, in its authoring. Uh, the computer was a cyber class machine. Uh, I guess, you know, if you know the cyber machine from Control Data Corporation, 
you would know that Simo Crane was one of the designers of that system before he left uh, Control Data Corporation to then build out Crane systems. But at that time, the cyber system were really the, the one. I used to play on it quite a bit. I was trying to do certain things with it for anthropology, you know, to build stuff. And then one day I found myself probably, I'm not sure how I got there, but I got into a restricted part of the system. And some gentleman came up, and his name is Paul Devonish. I'll never forget him. He was English. Uh, he was the maintenance. He managed that system. I'm not sure if he managed it from South Africa or the UK. And he asked me, and I just saw at the bottom of the screen, this person, there's a notice that says, who are you and what are you doing? And I'm like, what are you talking about? So, you know? so maybe, sorry, it, so maybe it's a fair case to make that you started your IT career as a hacker. <laughs> I, in this day and age, I don't like to say that. But so Phil said, look, you know, I told him what I was doing. And I said, look, you know, if you really want to know how to work the system, I will teach you. And I will show you how to kind of maneuver through it. And if you need help, then I will. So that's why maybe I, I remember for Devonese. And so the, the whole story then is there were two professors who came to South Africa, uh, Richard Dennis and Mary Potter. They were actually married. They were mathematicians. They had the University of Abana, Champagne. And they came to work uh, because Abana had one of those machines at, on their campus. And so they knew all about the Plato system and the cyber uh, machine. And so they came to the University of the Western Cape uh, to help us implement it. Uh, I got to know them then pretty well because I spent quite a bit of time talking to Phil Devonese and, and trying to see what I can do. You know, can I actually manipulate this thing to do multiple commands at a time instead of just the singular execution of commands, all of those kind of things. Then I started to teach myself things like basic anthropology then became somewhat an afterthought. I spent weekends in Punskard rooms at the university trying to learn basic and all of that. I still continued going to the embassies to read, you know, and, and, and get to know other things. Uh, I mean, there's other things that happened also during my life, not very savory. I mean, hanging out in corners and stuff. And then what happened, uh, I think things were beginning, political beginning to change in South Africa. Uh, some students, some students, you know, and, and I mean, it was also a time during the, uh, of the Cold War, you know, and, and you have these powers trying to maneuver, right? So students would go to Patrice Lumumba University in Moscow and others would go uh, to other places. So, I was given then a scholarship in uh, 1982 with the second round of the uprisings in South Africa, the riots and stuff. 76 being the first ones that started the whole thing with Sovereign. The second one then being, you know, in 1982, and there were 13 of us then who were coming to the U.S. Uh, I came to the U.S. to study more about computers and education. Uh, the kind of things that I got interested in when I got introduced to, to the cyber uh, class machine. 
So was that in Urbana-Champaign then? Or no, no. So that was the other part. So I, I so they asked me the universities uh, that you know, and I said, but you know, uh, Mary and and Richard. Uh, was from Urbana. There was another professor who came after them, also a mathematician, Robert Kansky, and he was from Wisconsin. And I learned all about him, uh, from him about Madison and how a great place it was and how socialist it was already. And, uh, you know, and, you know, all of these things that I would fit right in there. It's like, but then I th- Richard Dennis told me, you don't want to come. You're a city boy. You don't want to come to Urbana. It's just cornfields. But there is a cyber class machine also at the University of Delaware. And that's where I ultimately ended up. Okay. I just thought you were going to say Madison, which would be interesting because both of my children graduated from the University of Wisconsin. Oh, okay. So, yeah, he was very proud about how open-minded, you know, Madison, Wisconsin was at the time and the socialism and all of those kind of things. And this was long ago, right? I mean. And of course, you know, it's still the, a great place. Actually, yeah. um, I've yeah. been there many times. Obviously. Very enlightened. Uh, his name is Robert Kensky, and he was from the math department there. Uh, but I ended up with the professor Fred Hofstetter. I still visit him. Uh, he was actually a music teacher, but he was using the computers, and he is—he um, has some handicaps. And so he is—he was using the computer for you know in very innovative ways. And that's really, you know, wanted to see how he was stretching it. I still, I just visited him about a month and a half ago. Uh, he's the provost now, but uh, he doesn't teach. And he tells me now, you can just call me Fred, since you are now educated as well. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, so I still visit with him uh, because I do think all these people, you know, ha- had a great impact whether it was my high school teacher, you know, and, and stuff like that. I think, I do think, you know, all those experiences has brought me. Uh, while I was a student, uh, I was a student, one of my mentors was actually a board member of Control Data Corporation. I'm not sure just, you know, how that happened. He then knew some folks in IBM also. I guess they were either competitors also at the time. IBM was building the 360 while they were still trying to maybe see what they can do on the cyber. So they got me an internship at IBM. And I came to IBM as an intern uh, working, uh, what is his name? His name uh, escapes me now, you know, but uh, he was at IBM and he was using the computers and video disk for education as well. And he was in the Learning Center, actually, where the Learning Center is today. Uh, in New York. Yeah, uh, right in Armour. Right mm-hmm. uh, and so that's where I ended up. I spent my entire summer there. I lived down in White Plains in the Y. Uh, and I met some uh, fabulous people there. Uh, uh, the guinea pigs were all the... You know the uh, the the first line managers. Then, you know, they had different stages. Uh, you know, the new managers. Then the second uh, tier, and then the third tier, right? Uh, so, so during that time, and and I'm asking because 
you know, I always keep saying that me coming from Germany and staying in the U.S. for so long was never a plan. It just yeah. kind of happened. Sure. Right. Um, did you have the plan to return to South yes. Africa at the time? Yes, or, I did. Or... I did. I did. Okay. Apart, it was still going on. Uh, I didn't go back to South Africa actually for a couple of years. Uh, but the plan was always to go back. Right. I think ultimately when my undergrad and, and uh, you know, so my summer was spent there in, in Armagh. I went back to graduate school. I went to, to Harvard and then I was given a part-time job at IBM in Copley Place in the brand's office. And I guess there's some, you know, okay, we'll just keep you close to, so when you finally decide you're going to work permanently that, you know, the only place you know is really IBM and you'll come and join us. So, <laughs> and it sounds like it worked. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't. Something happened uh, at IBM and I said, this is really not. And, and the story I always refer to, you know, as I did ask the question of a director at IBM, uh, would a foreigner ever become the CEO of IBM? And he looked at me like, what? You know, and uh, at that time, it was all American, right? But I said, well, Pepsi, you know, uh, made the first Cuban, you know, foreigner, the Cuban um, CEO of, of Pepsi, right? I mean, the world is changing. He didn't think that was going to be, you know. Uh, while I was there, there was a Swiss, Cassani. We thought, actually, while I was there, a lot of people thought he was actually a great, you know, leader but he didn't become uh, the CEO of IBM or the president for that matter. And I decided, well, you know, although I don't think I'll ever become the CEO, like every American kid, right? I mean, maybe they want to be president, but everybody's not going to be president. But the dream is there. The dream is not sat down already for you, right? As, a, as an American, that you cannot become president. So why are you already setting this down? Why would I want to work here if I cannot get to the highest pinnacle of this company? So I left. I didn't join IBM. Actually, I went to work for Pricewaterhouse uh, when I graduated. And then, of course, the acquisition happened, and I got sent back to research. So, but then I said, this is not where I want to be. I want to. I mean, Pricewaterhouse. I work with clients, you know, and I and I came to work with clients. So I worked uh, on a number of big engagements. I worked with Ginny on the Sprint transformation, our first big billion-dollar deal for consulting. I worked in Korea on 3G, first 3G implementation for a country, which was in Korea. I work on uh, rice and staple food distribution for the islands of Indonesia. Uh, using low orbiting satellites as a communication because they don't have telcos in those islands. And then I worked with Telstra in Australia uh, for a couple of years uh, in, on, on an international assignment. But I, I'll go back because when you say, you know, did I, did I think about going back to South Africa? Yes, I did. I went back to try to, when everything changed, I went back and tried to resume my doctoral work there, but I couldn't find, you know, nobody could... Uh, nobody really wanted to take the task, you know, to, to, to oversee my work. And so, you know, I decided to come back uh, to the U.S. to continue my studies. Uh, 
but in the meantime, I, you know, I, I also, of course, met a girl that when I was undergraduate and, and I did spend a lot of time talking to her and stuff like that. So I, I guess it's just, so, you know, I, I was going to go back and then she was at the University of Madrid and I called her. I said, hey, I'm going to go back home, you know, and she said, no, no, just wait. I'm flying back. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to fly back. And she flew back and uh, we were sitting down in Washington, D.C. I said, OK, I'll meet you in D.C., you know, but I need to go back home. I mean, things have changed and, and I really need to go back, my visa and everything else. And uh, and then we just said, it's like, look, you know, I mean, we've been dancing around here for the last five years, right, of our lives. I mean, you've had girlfriends, I had boyfriends, and but we always ended up, you know, do, we th- do you think we should try to make it work? So I said, yes, let's try to make it work. And then, uh, and then I think, you know, just about maybe five months after that, we got engaged. And the first thing our father said was, golly, I was wondering when the hell are you guys going to make up your mind? <laughs> and then we got married the same year. And we've been married now for 35 years. Actually, yesterday oh, was our anniversary. <laughs> oh, wow. Congrats. Thank yeah. you. That's very cool. So ultimately, it's your, your wife is to, to thank for uh, still having Correct. you around. Uh, yeah. My wife at that time, right, I think my, my visa then got changed because the apartheid system was still in place. And, you know, there was an exception made uh, for me because, you know, you cannot put supposedly a, a U.S. citizen under duress. In, and given my wife is white, she cannot live in my neighborhood and I cannot go visit her in where she is and you know so all of those kind of things allow Biden was one of the senators who signed the petition and uh, what was the senator from uh, from South Carolina the one that people always refer to as very ultra conservative uh, he was from South Carolina and he was the other uh, uh, senator who, who signed the sponsorship and then yeah so that's how I ended up ultimately in, in the U.S. You know, it wasn't really the intention to be, uh, uh, the intention was always to go back home. It's, it's a, I mean, it's obviously a very inspiring story. At the same time, I remember when, when we did our, our prep conversation mm. for this podcast, you mentioned that you don't have a recipe yeah. for others to follow, right? Sure. And I, and I feel like I'm starting to see why that is, because it's a very unique kind of story that yeah. you I think I think always, right? I mean, people always say reflect, and I do to reflect. I think I like to reflect every day, right, about how I got here. I mean, right now, I mean, if you ask me when I was an intern at IBM, I remember working with a, with a coxswain from the Harvard Road team. He was a distinguished engineer. I didn't know what a distinguished engineer was. His name was David. But, you know, I just met the, these two managers and they were working on video disks, right? And we, IBM was just inventing and playing with video disks and, and seeing, you know, can we uplink pictures to do remote type of education with managers in their location, right? Uh, and real time. So you didn't have to bring them all to Armand. We can have remote uh, education. We can ask the questions and they can have a remote and they can press. And we can immediately see on the screen 
you know, on a dashboard, like how many people have answered in which way. And so we can kind of change the course, right, of the, of the teaching. That it's we interesting have. how it, it probably was revolutionary at oh. the time, because now it's something all of us do every day. Exactly. No, and, and that remote was this thick, this big, and it had two buttons. Yes, no, right? And so does it, it, it was questions like, in the event of something, you know, what are you supposed to do? Vacate the building, go in hiding, and so you could see, do people really understand the IBM policy or not? Because a lot of that was about what IBM expect of the managers to do in certain situations. So that's what we were testing, right? And at that time, it was all just SNA uh, and X.25 protocols. There was no internet. So, you know, it, the bandwidth wasn't that great. So you have to remember, this was very simple architecture, simple network architecture protocols, X.25 very, very low tech, not your IP yet. So, mm -hmm. but, you know, that's what I was working on and, and it was fun. Uh, but I mean, those two managers, they would take me out on weekends. We'll be on, uh, on the river, you know, they lived in Nyack right there by, uh, across from the Tappanzee. And so, you know, so all these people, as I have met, as I went along, you know, whether it was in high school, I had, uh, had an unfortunate incident when I was in high school. I stole a bike. I got run over by a truck. I spent six months in the hospital. And every Wednesday, this one teacher would make sure that I get all the week's work. You're going to work. Your punishment for what you did was you're going to be studying while you lie here in pain. And so in hindsight, you say, you know, they were torturing me, but... Uh, all of that helped, you know, I think. And so you look at these little things and you say, you know, uh, the world has conspired to get me, uh, you know. I just kind of went along, you know. But every kind of, I mean, even when I was 14 years old and traveling in South Africa by myself, even then, you know, people, uh, people were, you know, there's all these stories, you know. I mean, I remember running for the train to go back home to school. Vacation was over and I need to get to Cape Town. And and this is a true story. And I'm away from the station. And the train leaves in like 20 minutes. And I'm still far away. And I waved my hand and a VW stopped. The guy at the VW stopped. And he said, what's the problem? I need to get to the train station. I need to get to school by tomorrow. And the train leaves tonight. Uh, because it's an overnight journey. And he didn't say anything. He said, jump. I'll take you to the train station. I make the train. I met a girl, my first kiss on the train ever. Uh, and I got, you know, I got to school. And uh, so you just think about these little things that people has done for you, you know. And you say, well... I mean, I don't think, yeah, with, with, without any of them, I would have ever been here, you know. So, so, so that's why when I told you, you know, when people say come and talk, I don't usually talk to people, to students. I mean, I'll tell, I'll talk to students if they ask me for advice about specific things. But this is probably the only time I've ever talked about my journey with anybody to be able to record it. 
because I'm very reluctant. Even when I'm in South Africa, people say, well, you know, you're winter spirit owner, and my cousin is on the PTA, and come and talk to the school. I said, what am I going to tell them? You know, I mean, what am I going to tell them that, you know, uh, how to, I mean, I could tell them that, yes, it still takes a lot of work to do, but I think they know that, right? But maybe the recipe is that life's full of random chances and you got to grab them when they show up, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, my wife is Irish, so I always say, don't be like a drunken Irishman next door when then when the opportunity comes knock at your door. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. It's quite, quite a fascinating story, I have to say. And, and, uh, I, and, and you know, we're almost out of time yeah. here. And now I'm very hesitant to kind of make this giant leap and say why are you working on what's called global quality today? Uh, okay. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've worked on a lot of, I worked in research, of course, on services and things like that. I think for me, it was always, you know, the mission to improve what I was doing, whether, whether it's in school, whether it was when I was a student, it was always looking for opportunities to improve what I was busy with are the opportunities to improve what I was doing, right? The task that I'm at, like whether I was, when I was doing education, you know, uh, an undergraduate student at University of Western Cape, I didn't finish there because I came back, I came to the U.S. to do my undergraduate. Uh, I mean, my, my, my studies was disturbed. But, but nonetheless, at that time, I was looking for other ways that could help a student as well. And that's why I ended up with, with on the cyber machine with Plato, right? Uh, when I was, you know, doing my global delivery jobs and, and managing big projects for IBM, I also managed, at one point, I also ran the service line for the consulting practice in GDS, uh, application development, right? So methods was part of that and all of that. Uh, before we made this big change, this transformation, right, uh, and sold off other parts of the business. Uh, but I, I managed the service line. So I was always, and then I went back to research to work again on services research. Then came back out of, uh, of that to go to Australia to manage another big project, the technical delivery and stuff. WebSphere uh, 32-bit, which was very frustrating to me at the time because I was trying to look at bigger payloads and I was jumping at the bit for 64 WebSphere, but it was still lagging. So, but I was always looking for the next step, right? Then I think something happened with maybe the leadership at the time, management in my chain, and I decided to come and work for Rick Padina, who managed uh, delivery excellence in GBS at the time. Uh, because I do think there was a whole lot of lessons I learned in delivery. It's the loosening, the review of those solutions that I can bring to delivery excellence. Uh, Rick Padina retired uh, then, and Katie Bambrick then took over. And then, you know, it was renamed to the Global Quality Team. And that's where I have been and worked on all the things. So today my task is the, the tools and process transformation uh, for global quality. Uh, I mean, there's other execs and managing partners that oversee solutioning, but it is my task now to look at those processes and the tools we use to execute, to optimize it, uh, to make it, you know, the usability, improve the usability. Uh, but I also work on the risk, 
Like I spent time with Juan when he was still running GTS and he was a mathematician, of course. And uh, he always was big on risk, right? At one point, do we make decisions about a project? You know, how do we make those decisions? What type of projects to go after? How do we assess the risk of projects? What are some of the variables, you know? And that's really what I like on my job. I always look at all the data and how we can improve. Look at the data that gives me insight to look around the corner. And that's what I always like to do in my job. And I do a lot of that, right? I mean, I also do before the focus just on this task on solution transformation, I did a lot of our complex delivery reviews around the world. So I would say 60% of my time was going around the world reviewing some of our most complex projects uh, in different service lines in different countries. Uh, and today I'm actually reviewing IT Ergo in Germany. I still do. All right. <laughs> so I still I still do quite a bit uh, of those kind of that kind of work. But my main task now is to overall our solutioning uh, tools and process. Yeah. Okay. That leaves me with one more question sure. because unfortunately we're, we, I mean, we could probably, I could, I could keep listening forever, to be honest. Um, the question I always ask at the end of, of each episode mm. is, and if, if you can give us an example of something really cool and exciting that you're working on right now, either directly or indirectly, or that you're involved with that, that, uh, that you have passion for, yeah. can you name an example like that. Uh, what I have passion for, I mean, I've, I have collaborated with, on a bunch of patents, right? And so the patents I, I actually do like the best that I have worked on is patents for flood warning systems or flood warning for people with hearing impaired to be able to provide them certain of different chimes or ringtones and to be able to use mapping to tell them what direction they should move into a higher ground and stuff like that in case of flood warnings and stuff like that. Uh, I like that aspect of patent development, community patents, not necessarily the patents we're going to sell to Hitachi. I do like that aspect of my work and that IBM afford me that opportunity to write those kind of patents. That's what I like about my job, about building patents. Yeah. All right. Sounds very interesting. And, and, and as always, also, I feel like at the end of this is, you know, mentioned something that I now would love to dive deeper into and, and learn and hear more about, but mm -hmm. we'll, we'll save that maybe for the next, for a next podcast. Episode. Yeah. Okay. So um, that was a, a great, amazing story. Thanks so much for sharing that today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm not sure if it was amazing. I think I'm just being very lucky. All right. Thanks very much. With that, I uh, will wrap up today's episode. I want to thank everyone for listening and uh, hope to see you all soon. Mm -hmm.